Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, but we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. It's comics. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello. Hi. That's, that's a very low-key introduction. It was a very low-key introduction to our summer. Should we do it again? Should we give it, should we give it a boost? Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. Wow. Yeah. We're back. We are. We're in the swing of things. It's very difficult to actually get back into it. It was. That was take four. <laughs> take 44. <laughs> How many different ways can we say hello to everybody? Hello and welcome to the Hey Kids Comics Christmas, no, Summer Special. It's been a while. <laughs> For 2017, we have not been heard together mm. since Christmas. New Year. When was the last time we did one Christmas New Year? Yeah. When we did a, this is the swag we got for Christmas. And then, oh no, we did, we did. We whacked out a couple of Christmas, stuff. didn't we? You've so, told me that we did stuff, but I don't remember it. You don't remember doing McFarlane? No. We did McFarlane. Right. And I can't remember what else we did. But anyway, all of that is irrelevant to tonight's discussion. Today, tomorrow, forever and always. Discussion. Yes, on um, Identity Crisis. Mm-hmm. DC Comics, Identity Crisis. Seven issues, no digital filth. You hear that? That's seven shiny comics of shininess when we're back for a one night only return engagement is that what it is that's why this this is a one night only affair so that, that doesn't work if it's like a downloadable podcast no it's however many it's nights however you want. many nights you want yeah that's very true however this is we're only together for one night only okay to record this particular episode uh, and we may be back at christmas yeah. Depending on how all the, the ducks fall, but as it as it happens, hey, as it happens, now then, now then, as it happens, um, <laughs> we may very well be uh, only treating you to one or two episodes a year. Yeah, that's quite sad, isn't it? But life, you know. So, what have you been up to for the past seven months? Uh, I've been at uni, and then I got a job. Wow! I was looking for a job, and then, and I, then found I found a found job. job. And heaven, heaven knows, knows I'm, I'm miserable now. now. But you've got money. I have, but I give valuable time to people who don't care if I <laughs> live or die. <laughs> so yes, you've got a, you found a job. Yeah, which and was then, a talking head song. Was it? Damn that television! Oh, okay, that's that's found a job. Right. Okay. Okay. But you were you were more Morris than David, but yeah. What well, else you been up to? Pl- have, I have made a, a work playlist that we put on. Have you? And there is some talking heads on there. Is there? There is. I'm very impressed. Yeah. And what's been happening that we haven't talked about? So much has been happening. Anything that we didn't could have happened about. that we didn't talk about. Anything, but largely pertaining to what we normally discuss. Spider-Man: Homecoming. It was good. It was alright, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was okay. That. Uh, what else came out? Uh, Wonder Woman. Came Wonder out. Woman. Wonder Woman was good. It's alright. Yeah, it was okay. Um, what else? Did anything else come out? I can't remember. Has there not been a Marvel movie this year that isn't Spider-Man? 
Oh no, Thor's not come out yet. Thor's not come out yet, no. Yeah. Anyway. Guardians 2. Oh yeah, Guardians 2. Which yeah. you liked more than I did. I did. Yeah, you thought it was better than the first one. I did. I did not think it had the freshness of the first one. But it was still entertaining. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't bad. Have you noticed ever since Guardians came out, every Marvel film set in space wants to be wacky and 80s? Mm. Just look at the new Thor. I have not watched the trailer for the new Thor. Have you not? No. Well, we ha- I have, me and my friends have a theory that the further out into space the Marvel films get, the more wackier and 80s and synthwave aesthetic they get, as proven by okay. Thor Ragnarok. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to Thor Ragnarok because it's Planet Hulk. Grr. Yeah. Which is awesome. But amongst other things. Amongst other things. And in the comic book realm, what have you been enjoying over the past seven months? I only follow hmm. Scott Snyder's Batman. That's it. So I've been reading All-Star, which is always fun. Hmm. And then the, the Metal tie-ins, The Dark Days, Yeah, they've been good. And uh, James Stokoe's Alien. Dead so, Orbit. Yeah. Right. And, that, and that's all I'm reading. It's all I can afford on a monthly basis. It's all you can afford. But what you must have picked up all the stuff. I've not. You you got All Star Superman. Oh yeah, but that's not anything I'm reading. I just, well, I you're just... not going to read All Star Superman Absolute Edition you, that you got for dirt cheap. You know what? I'm, like that's I'm not reading that. Right. Like, I picked it up in a sale. I thought, oh okay, cool. Oh, this is good. That's, that's a little bit damaged, but it's, yeah, it's a little, little to thirty quid. That's what a third off a third of the I think usual that was price. Forty quid, and I got. Hush as well mm. for thirty. As you pointed out, you don't even like Hush, but for thirty pounds, <laughs> I will. I will have the Jim Lee Absolute Edition of Hush. Yeah, because you like the artwork yeah. more than you actually like the story. I like the collectability and the bargain. Yeah, it's, it's it's stupid, but I will happily spend money that I don't have to spend just because in my mind I'm spending less on it than I would have had to. Yeah, well, we went to we went to Birmingham yesterday, as we record this lovely list. Birmingham. Brummyland. And uh, there was a Nostalgia in Comics, though, which was awesome. I nearly got the Rocketeer Artist Edition. Very nearly got the Rocketeer Artist Edition. Yeah, when you decided not to bother. And then we went to Forbidden Planet, and both of them had some decent sales on, didn't they? Yeah. So it was quite unusual to find comic book stores that had decent sales on. So it was like. It's oh. unusual to find a Forbidden Planet with decent yeah, sales. Yeah, Forbidden Planet doesn't only do sales. So I've got to sell your liver just for a Funko Pop. <laughs> So I almost bought the Tales of the Batman hardcover for Len Wein and Marshall Rogers. Because mm. they were like £13 instead yeah. of the usual £45. But like you, I elected to not purchase those because I've got everything that's in them. Yeah. So, I mean, I know they look pretty on your shelves. but you know, when I you've won't got have them... any shelves like the way I'm going for it. Why? They might have heavy... Heavy books and omnibuses and absolutes. It's just going to fall on you in the night and kill yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway. He died yeah. how he lived. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he died as he lived under a bookshelf. <laughs> anyway, all right. Okay, it's good to be back, though. It's mm-hmm. nice to be back behind the mic. Yeah. Mic. Hey. 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 <laughs> so, um, we've as got... As Gary Glisser once said, no, it's he good didn't. to be back. No, he didn't. That, the Oasis We tick in said, and we tick him two it's boxes It's good to now. be back. We do not mention Gary Glitter in any way. Anyway, we do have um, a number of emails that have have, uh, piled up since the last time we got together. Uh, So we're going all the way back to the 13th of January 2017 for an email from Nathaniel Wayne. Joyous solstice, which is just what you want to be discussing in the middle of August. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just starting to rain and go grey again, so we can pretend. We can pretend. Well, the the nights are closing in again, aren't they? Mm. As we record this. Uh, just, I'm warning, it's a Thursday night as well. Yeah, Just yeah, to, yeah. to give you that little level of, of um, nostalgia. Authenticity. Yeah, it is actually a Thursday night, and we are together recording a Hey Kids Comics on a Thursday night mm-hmm. in our lovely library of, of what it is glittering now, yeah. delights in the Demanzo Court Northern Division. <laughs> Anyway, Nathaniel's email. It's nice to know that things don't change. It's nice to know that we start an email yeah. and then interrupt tangents. that email and have a scripted tangent. <laughs> uh, Nathaniel's email. Just listen to the Christmas Hall episode. Sounds like you two made out pretty well. My own Christmas was Doctor Who heavy. Series 8 on Blu-ray. Plus, I nabbed a new sonic screwdriver to add to the collection, which has become a traditional thing for me to get at this point. It's the new 12th Doctor screwdriver. Whilst I'm still not in love with the design of the thing, the toy is excellent. I liked it so much, I even did a toy review on the Council of Geeks YouTube. I think that plug went in smoother than last time. Well, if it's a butt plug, I would imagine it did. (laughs) The surprise one I wasn't expecting was a 10th Doctor tie, like Tenant tenant wore right up to the end. Brown, with a kind of light blue swirly design on it. Matt Smith ruins that tie in his first episode, because I watched his first episode, The 11th Hour, a couple of days ago. Because I've just been cherry-picking episodes, because I've been on a Doctor Who kick recently. Been watching John Pertwee, some Tom, some Matt Smith. Good stuff, some of it. I'm sure it is. I'm still behind on it. Well, you can skip the last series. What's the good ones? <laughs> okay. No, there's, there's, there's two good ones. Right. Well, maybe three. It's John Sim good in it? John Sim's good in it, but wasted. Mm. The, the the last two parts of part one is, is sublime. Right. Absolutely brilliant. Okay. And then the final part has a couple of good moments, thanks to Mr. Capaldi, but completely wastes having two masters. Right. And then earlier on in the series, there was a really good one about why the River Thames iced up. In uh, the 1800s, I think it was. Right. That's a good one. Okay. And the um, the what's it? The I'm assuming it's house a little one. more elaborate than just the cold weather. Yes. It, 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 <laughs> yes. Because if that was the story, the Doctor shows up, flaps his sonic screwdriver out. Wow, the scripts are really getting a bit worn <laughs> out. Wow, it's cold. Let's go, Bill, <laughs> and off they leave. Um, and uh, the haunted house one. Bill okay. gets a house with all of her uni flatmates. That was yeah, a good one. Turns out to be haunted. Turns out to be haunted. Okay. Yeah, that was a that was a good one. So there's four four that you could watch. Right. And Nadal's good. I like him. Matt right. Lucas is good. Have I have I told you me Matt Lucas story? I've that not. I almost knocked him over I've... at London Euston Station. Don't you probably have that? I almost yeah. walked into him. Okay. I was getting off the train. All alone at dawn. Back yeah. into the hole where I was born. Mm-hmm. Sun in the sky. Never raised an eye to me. Okay. Uh, and I was I was looking at me phone as you do. Right. Trying to figure out where I was going because I was okay. going to that convention in London on my own. Um, and as I was doing that, I almost walked smack dab into the middle of Nardole himself. Right, okay. Matt Lucas. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, oh, it's okay, no worries. And we went on our way. Okay. That was it. And it was only after the fact that that was Matt Lucas. I should have asked him, how, asked him how Doctor Who was going. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't. And so we moved on with Nathaniel's email. Uh, I liked it so much, continues Nathaniel, referring many, many weeks ago when we started this email uh, to David Tennant's tie. I wore it out on New Year's Eve, much to the annoyance, and much to my annoyance, sorry, nobody caught it. I need geekier friends, or maybe my geeky friends need to hold more parties. Either way, I drank absinthe for the first time that night, so the whole thing's a bit hazy. Anyway, Happy New Year in August. Look forward to whatever sporadic tidbits you throw out for us to enjoy. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, this is a tidbit. 
mm-hmm. or a bit tit, tit for tat, tat for tit. Yeah, okay. that's what we like, isn't it? A bit of tat for tit. <laughs> um, Emmett, oh no, Cindy, Chris, Chris, not Cindy. Chris Although, Franklin. As, as we've already discussed, she as, writes the emails. Yes, Cindy does all the emails. Chris isn't real. <laughs> yeah. He's just a hologram. He's a created character. So that Cindy gets his royalty checks from his back issue articles. <laughs> <laughs> that, that implies there are royalty checks from back issue articles. Anyway, Chris, life in the McFarlane. Hey. hey, we like that, don't we? Hello, Leylands. Not said that for a while. Both of us mm-hmm. together again. Mm-hmm. Butch and Sundance. Malcolm and Wise. <laughs> the two Ronnies. The two Ronnies. <laughs> Jim Brackett. <laughs> I was a huge McFarlane fan during his meteoric rise on the Hulk and Amazing Spider Man. I wasn't sold on his Batman because he replaced Alan Davis mid storyline on Batman Year Two, and I loved Davis and still do. A buddy of mine was buying the Incredible Hulk when Todd began his run, and his art was certainly intriguing. I dropped off on Spidey a bit too following the lackluster handling of the Hobgoblin affair and rushed wedding. So imagine my surprise that I couldn't resist buying Amazing Spider Man 300 off the stands. The comic practically radiated electricity. There was an energy, a vitality that I hadn't been on the book in ages. Probably since Roger Stern left, honestly. I have to give David McAlini credit as well. His story's perfectly suited Todd's artwork. I followed the Toddster over to the adjective left Spider-Man and... Yeah, that was the beginning of decompressed storytelling, wasn't it? Four or five issues of nothing but doom on every page. Ugh. But like a lemming, I bought every issue. I also picked up the first 20 or so issues of Spawn, I'll admit. In hindsight, I'm not sure why. I think as I got older and got more art training myself, I saw through Todd's flash and scratchy lines, noodly webs and ridiculously long capes. Now I look at it as a curiosity of the time. It was definitely the Spider-Man everyone wanted and needed in the late 80s. But just like most of the hair metal videos that once ran on MTV, going back and watching them now is a bit of a struggle. But it's been a while since I looked at his stuff with any real attention, so maybe when Ryan and I get to Batman Year 2 over on Nightcast, I'll have a reappraisal and change my mind. Hey, Batman 1989 has gone up and down on my personal evaluation scale, and it was from the same era, so why not? Great episode, Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. It's always nice to hear from Cindy Franklin. Mm-hmm. And Chris, you pretends. <laughs> How long do we keep that going? As long as... as long <laughs> Forever. Until we just... Beating the joke into the ground. Let it never be said. We did not successfully take a joke, take it out into the back garden, and just put a gun to its head. Curb stomp it. (laughs) (laughs) Curb stomp that joke. That joke isn't funny anymore. It's on to its last twitches, I think, now. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I think we've still got some life in it. I think we can still beat a couple of uh, dead horses about that. Anyway, uh, Emmett Okuana. Okuana? Sorry, I, I do apologise if I have pronounced that incorrectly. Has emailed in. Todd McFarlane, trip back in time. Hello, gents. Long-time listener and so on. I want to drop a note of thanks for the latest episode. I had a pleasant memory of reading X-Men Hulk from a British annual in the 1980s. At that age, I think McFarlane's dark and aggressive art style made an impact. The story felt adult and almost intimidating with the green blood on Wolvie's claws and the characters talking about events from the same 1970s. These felt like the X-Men felt a little bit worn down by the world. For some reason, that's what stuck in the memory most about this short comic. So thanks again for a trip down memory lane. Keep up the good work, Emmett Okwana. P.S. Wingard Watch. How about his inspiring Mr. Six in Morrison's The Invisibles, did it? Peter Wingard? 
I've no idea. Did he not? Did do something about a Grant Morrison comic though that you are not a werewolf? I couldn't tell you. Wow, we've made you speechless. Yeah, I was only looking at the Invisibles the other day as well. Yeah. I was thinking of rereading it. I had to flick through the absolute. Right. Only because Dana, my girlfriend, mm. didn't believe in that Grant Morrison wrote himself into a story and nearly died because of it. So I had to dig through and find all the evidence and then the essays he wrote proving it. He's such a drama queen, isn't he? <sighs> no, Grant he, Morrison. No, he's not. Yes, no, he's, he's, he's a drama, drama queen. More um, like a drama princess. He's, he's a drama princess. We've got time for one more. Well, we've got all the time in the world, really. There's no limit on these Technically, things. Technically, yeah. Technically, we can record this crap all night. Whether anyone would listen to it, <laughs> you know. It just gets to the point we're just sat here on our phones. <laughs> <laughs> People still another, listening another, in the vague hope we'll do something interesting. Uh, another email? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> Anyway, our next email is from Tom Panaris. It's all about comic book rock stars. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Thomas. So I've listened to both of your episodes about Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane, two rock star comic book creators of the early 1990s, whose work probably does deserve a closer look now that we're on the 25th anniversary of the founding of Image Comics. Although the essential Image free book my LCS was giving out recently only really pays lip service to the company's early days, so it can sell you more recent and still-in-print trade paperbacks, but that's a whole other conversation. Needless to say, I have thoughts. I came to both Lee and McFarlane just as Image was getting started, with my, my, my first McFarlane comic being Spawn 1, although I did have the Batman Year 2 trade, but that doesn't count as I bought it for the Batman and not for the McFarlane, and my first Lee comic being one of his last issues of X-Men, either 9 or 10, I think. With the exception of a brief foray into the Liefeld books at Image, kids make stupid mistakes, what can I say? I primarily went for Spawn and Wildcats when the company made its debut, although the latter was so behind on shipping I'm pretty sure I ditched that series after its fourth issue. I hung on to Spawn for quite a bit longer though. I've probably done this before, so forgive me if you've heard this. Forgive me if you've heard this before. Stop me, stop me, oh stop me. Stop me if you think that you've heard this one before. We're shoehorning the Smith references in tonight. I'm wondering when we're going to get bored of them. (laughs) We haven't got bored of them in seven years. You know how many of these shows we've shoehorned Smith's tongue titles into? Yeah, well, this joke just isn't funny anymore. (laughs) I haven't already said that today. Do you just not listen? To you? Yeah. (laughs) That's a stupid question. in general. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, yes, yes. Uh, when I listen to your other fellow podcasters, mainly Michael Bailey, talk about the image guys, I can't help but compare them to the rock stars of the 1980s, especially because of the celebrity status they achieved with their flashy style and mega millions in sales that seemed to crash just as sharply as they rose. Lee, McFarlane and Liefeld work well within this comparison, with Liefeld being one of the her metal of the bunch, a pretty boy like Brett Michaels, who still has his fans, but is going to be playing every rose has its thorn on throwback tours until his last wig phrase. Lee, on the other hand, is clearly John Bon Jovi, whose band has been cranking out mediocre album after mediocre album for 30 years and still puts asses in seats as long as they play Living on a Prayer in the encore. I was quite the Jim Lee fan in the early 1990s, but I can't tell you if that's because I like the way he drew comics or if I like the way he drew women's breasts, something I think influenced Ed Benes, to be honest. I've read some of his earlier comics and you guys were right that when he was actually restrained to a story, Lee was a competent penciler. Furthermore, his X-Men work at first really wasn't too much of a departure from Mark Silvestre, who did the art chores on the book for quite a while before having a lengthy run on Wolverine and then starting up Cyberforce, a 90s title if ever there was one. 
But much like the rocker I've compared him to, Lee's best days are behind him and he seems to be just cranking out stuff because it pays the bills. I know that he's still a name to put on a book to get sales, his Superman and Batman will make their way onto t-shirts and merchandise, and he'll get attention at shows, but in my mind he's been surpassed by artists like Ivan Rice and Greg Capullo, who have done some definitive work on DC's books. McFarlane is clearly David Lee Roth had the swagger and the style with the talent to back it up. He even went solo at one point and his replacement on that work made him sorry, and his replacement on the work that made him fared very well, although I don't know how much Eric Larson would like being compared to Sammy Hagar, but let's just go with it. <laughs> and has a reputation for having, well, a bit of an attitude, just ask Peter David. Still, I can't deny that I wasn't drawn to his artwork, especially during those early days of Spawn, when it was one of the few image books coming out on a consistent basis, and was also consistent in its quality. McFarlane, when I started collecting, was the biggest name in comics, and looking back, it's not hard to see why. His artwork has aged surprisingly well compared to his peers, and I've enjoyed what little I've read of his Spider-Man work. I will say that I'm also curious as to what his artwork would have looked like had Todd stayed at Marvel or spent his career working for the Big Two, instead of striking out on his own and staying there. What would it have been like if he'd been doing the art on a mainstay character and working with writers other than himself? Could you possibly imagine sorry, what the JLA would have looked like under Morrison McFarlane? Did I miss make Michael vomit with that question? I don't know, that couldn't have been any worse than Howard Porter. That's In very fact, true. <laughs> was Howard Porter not the image artist of DC at the time? What, in that he was a little bit crap? Yeah, and yet still was put on the big titles. I don't know, because I'll be honest, I was never that big a fan of Howard Porter's art. He's, he's a lot better now, but mm. he's still Howard Porter. Can you imagine, all right, yes, the Justice League with Todd McFarlane or the Justice League with Jim Lee? That Grant Morrison run, everything's exactly the same, but either Lee or McFarlane as the artist. That probably would have been better than what we got. Because mm. that, that run is... Howard Porter's probably made an awful lot of money off that run because it's in perpetual print. Despite not being very good. Yeah. yeah. So so that didn't make you vomit. You're actually thinking, actually, <laughs> that may have been fun. Oh, to live on another multiverse. Yeah, where that happened. Mm. That would have been good. Anyway, this email is getting long-winded and I should probably get back to editing whatever episode of In Country, Pop Culture, Affidavit or Required Reading with Tom and Stella that I'm procrastinating on. It's always good to hear you guys talk comics and I can't wait for the next episode. All the best, Tom. Well, I hope that waiting for the next episode hasn't caused you to die mm. because this, this has been a long one. Anyway, there's a couple of other emails that uh, about Eye of the Camera. We did Eye of the Camera! Yeah. Yeah, where? We did. We did. So, but we'll leave them for for the Christmas Next year. show, <laughs> and we'll we'll plug in somebody's email. And we may do another email later. Okay. I won't plug in an email. I'll plug in an ad. Yes. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? And then when we get back, um, I say get back. It's not like we're going anywhere. Uh, we will cover all seven issues of Identity Crisis, one of the most controversial comic books ever published by DC Comics. We, of course, will tackle every controversial aspect of this story and we'll just gloss over it like we normally do. Right, okay. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute. Stay. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey. I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. 
1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book-filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It All Comes Back to Superman is part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube Podcasting Network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Bailey Tude Podcasting Network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Anyway. Some people are just silly. <laughs> Some people are just silly is the, my favourite thing you've ever said. <laughs> Eddie Rodham. Identity Crisis was announced in 2004 as the Comics Event of the Year. Forgive us for sounding jaded, but that's a phrase that doesn't really carry much weight anymore. Back in 2004, almost 15 years ago, it wasn't as tired. Dan Didio had entered the comics world and had a worldview of cynicism that he wanted to apply to the DC Universe. We aren't going to bash Didio here, because let's face it, we've done that before. But let's give credit to the guy. He course-corrected after listening to the fan base, and DC Comics is currently in better shape than it's been in years. Back then, though, Didio wanted everything to be dark and miserable, his words, feeling that this is where drama came from. Many balked at Didio's ideas, but let's be honest... The darkening of the DC Universe had been happening for years. Granted, not quite to this level. Writer Brad Meltzer had grown up reading DC Comics. In fact, his first comic was Detective Comics issue 475, with the Joker holding two laughing fish, a cover that freaked out young Meltzler so much he couldn't bring himself to read it. By default, then, his first comic became Justice League of America, issue 150. And, like a lot of us, this led to a lifelong love of comics and their characters. Didio pitched Identity Crisis to Meltzer after the latter's run on Green Arrow was well received. The pitch included a lot of details of the actual story and came to Didio after the events of September 11th, 2001. After seeing the firefighters put their lives on the line for people, Didio wanted to apply this idea to the DC Comics pantheon. He wanted to show people that this was a dangerous vocation, with the heroes putting their lives on the line every day. The Sue Dibney reveal, which we will come to later, was also part of Didio's original pitch. Metzler initially refused. He couldn't understand who would hurt Sue. And that's when Didio revealed his ace card. Gene Loring. For those not in the know, Sue Dibney was the wife of Ralph Dibney, the DC hero and detective known as the Elongated Man. Generally considered to be the best detective in the world, after Batman, naturally, Ralph and Sue generally had this whimsical little relationship and, and their adventures were of little consequence. Jean Loring was the wife of the Atom, Ray Palmer, although they had since divorced. Neither the Atom or the Elongated Man were particularly on my radar as characters I really cared about, so this may be why I didn't have the reaction to this series. A lot of readers did. What about you? Elongated Man or the Atom? Elongated Man. Really? Why? Yeah, because of this. Because of this? Yes. Because really? I read this young. Mm. Um, Probably too young. So that was probably my first introduction to it. And then 52, uh, 
I think his bits in that are the standout moments in it. Who wrote those bits? I think... I think that Matt Wade? No, I think Morrison did the elongated man stuff. Right. Because um, they've never actually announced or said who did what parts. Right. But some of them have said, oh, I like doing this bit. Oh, and this bit was fun to write. Right. See, I'd, of the two of them, I probably knew more about the Atom, simply because the Atom had a regular backup in Detective Comics. I want to say in like the late 80s, early 90s, when I started picking up the American editions, mm. he had a backup strip, so I knew him kind of by default. Right. But either character, I was like, well, okay, whatever. Yeah. Neither one of them particularly appealed to me. There's another Smith lyric fight. <laughs> Armed with one of DiDio's infamous death lists, Meltzer went away to think about it, came back with a plot a week later, and focused on the story. His actual plot was more focused on what happened if the heroes made a decision that at the time seemed to be the right one, but later came back to bite them on the arse. A story about human error. Identity Crisis was a seven-issue miniseries that came out from August 2004 to February 2005. The series was written by Brad Meltzer with art by Rags Morales and Michael Burr. Each cover was by Michael Turner. They signify pretty much the tone of the series. Issue 1 is the League stood around a coffin. Superman is crying. Issue 2 is the sublet members of the League. Flash, Zatanna, Hawkman, Green Lantern, Atom, Black Canary and Green Arrow stood around in a heavy mood lighting looking moody. Issue 3 has those same League members bloodied and beaten by Deathstroke. Issue 4 has a moody-looking Wonder Woman. Are we getting that the watchword is moody? Issue 5 has Robin crying. Issue 6 has Batman crying. Issue 7 has all the heroes' capes and gear hung up in a Spider-Man No More style. All of these covers lay out the stall of the series. This isn't going to be a light story. Mm. They're all striking. Yes, every single one of them. Not interesting. Do you not think... Like, so there's a certain interest to the cover to number one. It's whose coffin are they surrounding? Mm. So, but Superman having a, a tear, a one one man tear, single man tear yeah. running down his cheek. That's a bit much, isn't it? To be honest with you. Uh, then issue two, what's what's that really? Is Zatanna glowing everybody? She's glowing the memory thing. Yeah, it's it's, you know, it's moody. Uh, issue three, we've said Deathstroke takes on the league. Everyone's looking a bit worse for work. Green Lantern could be dead though, for all we yeah. know. You know. Yeah, that was just you know, having a rest. Yeah, he's having a lie down. Uh, Wonder Woman holding the golden lasso on the cover to issue four. Wonder Woman. What do you think of Michael Turner? He, he draws very quite attractive women for two dimensional drawings, but his men all look like fragrance commercial models. <laughs> See, I always find his women to be a bit too skinny. They've mm. always got ample bosoms, but tiny, tiny waists. Yeah. But in terms of his actual anatomy, if you actually look at that cover of Wonder Woman, though, certainly the arms, the shoulders, everything else is, is perfectly good anatomy, isn't it? Yeah. It's interesting that he never got as much flack as, say, Frank Cho, who is anatomically and technically a much better artist. Mm. And draws women of different sizes. Yeah. Let's not forget that. All of Meltzer's... All of Meltzer's... All of Michael Turner's women, there's not really a lot of difference in the the body shapes, is there? Mm. You know, Zatanna and and Black Canary are on the cover to issue too. They've both got big boobs and tiny waists. Yeah. There's, There's not a lot of difference between who they are. I, I did actually grow to like Michael Turner's art. 
Yeah. Because, like, if you look at the actual work on the cover to issue five of Robin crying, the actual figure work's really good. Mm. And the background of the city is also really good. So, like, the Jim Lee thing, take the action away, he's a good artist. If you take yeah. the tits away, yeah. he's a good artist. I mean, the, my favourite cover of the lot is the cover to issue seven. Right. Which is just the capes and cowls, or the, the quiver, if you look at Green Arrow, just hung up. I like that Wonder Woman just, yeah, and the the Green Lantern ring and Wonder Woman left her lasso because obviously she couldn't leave her costume, could she? Mm. But um, that's my favourite cover of the lot and I think that's the one they ended up using on the trade, is that right? Or the Absolute Edition? I don't know. They absolutely redrew a new one. Right. I don't know about the trade. Is it a new Michael Turner cover? No, it's Rags Morales. All right, so Rags Morales did the cover for the Absolute Edition. All right, that seems fair enough. Uh, All right, um, you can have a break. Well, I do the synopsis. A routine mission for the elongated man, uh, a.k.a. Ralph Dibney, ends tragically when he returns home to find his wife, Sue Dibney, murdered, her body burned almost unrecognisably. As Ralph goes into meltdown, the Justice League begin their investigations and Sue's autopsy begins. Ralph demands they go and find Dr. Light, a Z-list villain who no one takes seriously. Wally West, the Flash, is confused as to why Light, a goofball, would be the first port of call when Oliver Queen, the Green Arrow, tells him that Light wasn't always a loser. Many years ago, the League caught him in the satellite headquarters having raped Sue Dibney. A vote was cast by the League as present and Light's mind was wiped of the incident by Zatanna and his personality altered. Wally can't believe Batman, Superman or Wonder Woman would be involved in the decision, but Ollie says they weren't there and so there was no reason to tell them. After a fight with Deathstroke, the League learns that Light wasn't behind this and Wally hears Deathstroke say that Light wasn't the only villain Zatanna mind wiped. Wally asks for more information and Ollie tells him that they also fiddled with the Injustice League's mind after they all swapped bodies and the villains took photos of the heroes sans masks. Only halfway through this mind wipe, the Batman came back to the satellite, so they wiped him too. Wally stirs in disbelief. You mind wiped Batman? Jean Loring, the ex-wife of Ray Palmer, the Atom, is then brutally attacked but fortunately survives. Lois Lane is threatened involving Superman in a more direct manner, but the investigation seems to be stalled. Sue's autopsy, which is still ongoing, reveals Light couldn't have been the murderer. The heroes become more desperate when another family member is attacked. Jack Drake, the father of the current Robin, Tim Drake. The attacker is Captain Boomerang and Jack was mysteriously sent a gun with a note saying, protect yourself. He does so, shooting Captain Boomerang, but in his death throes, Boomerang hurls a razor rang at Jack, stabbing him through the heart. The death of Robin's father seems to spur on the Batman, who, now armed with more evidence, asks the important questions. Who benefits and why was the body burned? The autopsy reveals that Sue's brains have tiny footprints in it. Who benefits when a superhero family member is killed? The other family members. Why burn the body? To hide something. At home, Jean Loring and the Atom, who can shrink, are renewing their relationship. The moment is ruined when Jean asks Ray who sent the note to Jack. Ray says that that's not public knowledge, and his blood turns ice cold. Jean apparently wanted to scurse Sue, so the heroes would value their loved ones more, and then she and Ray could get back together. Sue dying ruined that plan, so Jean burned her. Her own attempted death was, of course, a setup, and she sent the gun to Jack so he would shoot Captain Boomerang and the case would be closed. Ray commits Jean to Arkham Asylum, but the League endures. I mean, there's a lot more other stuff that goes on in terms of character and 
yeah. motivation and stuff. But that's basically the plot, isn't it? Yes. Such as it is. Um, there's two ways of looking at this story. We're going to attempt to do both and do it some kind of justice. One is to look at it as a story, a piece of work in its own right. And as a story, this is beautifully constructed. The cross narratives, the different points of view, the dialogue, the setup, the payoff, especially in the first issues, all exceptionally good and easy to follow. Even the different timelines between now, half an hour ago, and the future aren't confusing. Or did you disagree? No. Uh, I felt like it was fine because they all took place at different times, but collided into the same yeah. kind of central point, into the I guess. the same moment, yeah. Um, I think this is one of those series that starts strong and then just gets worse the more it goes on and you actually start thinking about it. No, I think it's one where it is strong until it all falls apart in the last act. Right. Okay, so we're not completely on different pages then. Mm. All right, that, that's fair enough. Um, the issue, this opens, Elongated Man and somebody called Lorraine Riley, who's Firebird, yeah. uh, are on some kind of stakeout mission. How is this a secret stakeout when she glows and ignites half the block? Well, her- How did these two guys not see her? Well, they established that half the block have seen her. All oh, right, okay. So they do. Yeah. Right. So she's not very good at her job then, is basically. One of the things I did like about this this first issue specifically is there is an enormous feeling of foreboding Yes. over the whole enterprise. All credit to Brad Meltzer for pulling that off. And in retrospect, when you've read it the first time and you're rereading it, the setup for this is actually quite masterful. Mm. It's one of those stories where, because you've read it, you know how it's going to turn out, but you don't want it to turn out that way. But the outcome is ultimately inevitable. Mm. So I was quite a, quite a fan of this first issue. I think it's really good. There's some lovely character bits. The history of the relationship as well is really nice. Yeah, as well. the history of um, Jean, Jean Laurie, not Jean Laurie, uh, Sue and Ralph Dibney, isn't it? Yeah. The history of their relationship's great. There's stuff between Superman and Mar and Pa Kent, mm. which bookends the series. Yeah. Which I thought was a really nice touch. That's very well handled. Um, I especially like the, the moment where um, Mar's giving him a hard time for getting them the Daily Bugle for free. Daily Bugle. The Daily Bugle, the Daily Planet, sorry. It's the same paper. <laughs> Let's be honest. I want pictures of Superman. <laughs> Is he a menace? <laughs> you know, I'd actually pay to see J. Jonah Jameson in charge of the Daily Planet. <laughs> Can you? That would be a brilliant story. Everything else stays the same. Right. It's just a Marvel DC crossover where J. Jonah takes over the planet and Perry White takes over the Daily Bugle. In fact, okay. that, that story would be boring. Because Joe, Robbie Robertson and, and Perry White would probably get on very well together. Yeah. And they would run like a well-oiled machine. So that'd be dull <laughs> as dirt. But J. Jonas Jameson taking over the planet, that'd be interesting. That's a story. Superman's S is far too big on the art in that particular scene, though. Rax Morales is a good artist. He's a good artist. He, he doesn't... He, he struggles to draw things similar more than once. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because Superman's S changes size and shape. Frequently, yeah, yeah. As it's weird seeing Nightwing as well at his parents' grave. Yes. Wearing his full costume, but 
a jacket over it. Yeah, so why not? You said this earlier, didn't yeah, you? Why not just go to the grave as Dick Grayson? Yeah. Why go as Nightwing? It's less effort. <laughs> Maybe he just doesn't take the Nightwing costume off. But then, so like, say he's put it on so he can go on patrol or whatever. Yeah. Is he patrolling around in the jacket? Yeah, what's he going to do with the waistcoat afterwards? The yeah. waistcoat, the trench coat afterwards? Yeah, I mean, that that is a little bit silly. Yeah, it's... isn't it? But it but it's not silly. It's dark and gritter. Okay. Wearing a costume, but with the trench coat over it. Right. It's okay. dark and gritter, and realistic. Yeah. Because the whole point of this series <laughs> is to make everything dark, gritty, and realistic, isn't it? Mm. Everything's dark and gloomy. <laughs> um, Meltzer really does go for the heartstrings. You've already alluded to this. That the story of how Ralph and Sue first met is is really touching mm. and all credit to Matzler for pulling that off um it's easy to see where this is going especially when you've read it the first time yeah and the the setup of it all but it it doesn't harm the story when you know the outcome of this the end of this first day yeah and aside of how people might feel about what happens mm. it still needed a setup that was equally as strong to kind of balance it out a bit yeah, especially for somebody like me who, who I knew the elongated man was. Yeah. but because I feel like if you're just gonna, you know, pull out the rape card, it's an easy trope that's frequently seen. So you you gotta have something that balances out a bit, and I think this does well enough. Yes, yeah. This fir- the first issue, the setup of this is actually really really good. Um, there is a moment where we would they have the chat about the um, Ralph's twitching nose, don't they? Yeah. And what does he say? I'm looking for exactly what he says. I know he basically says that um, his nose doesn't twitch. Yeah. That was just an affectation or something. And Green Arrow told uh, about it. And he said, well, that's where he wears the hat because he has a bald spot. Mm. I thought that was just a bit... That's pissing all over the Silver Edge, isn't it? Really. Is it? One of those goofy things about the Silver Edge that made the character fun. But we can't have any fun in this series, so... Yeah, but it... It doesn't say that that's not true. It's just, oh, it Green Arrow says this. Yeah. It's kind of like having a bit of a laugh at it and then backing away before it goes anywhere else. Yeah, but I don't believe for a second anyone in this series is having a laugh about anything. See, I don't know. I think it's it's not as dark and moody as you are saying it is. Really? Yeah. A story where an innocuous Silver Edge character gets raped by a Z-list Silver Edge villain... That's but, not dark enough for you. that's not what it is, though, is it? That's not what it's about. It's, no. a, it's about family and friendships. Yes. And it, it is light-hearted in that, despite its overall appearance. Yes. Yes, it is. But you've also got to take into consideration one of the, the big criticisms of this series is its treatment of women. In that Sue Dibney's there to get murdered and raped. Jean Loring's there to be the murderer. Name one other woman of import in this story. Zatanna. What does she do? She's the catalyst for everything. She's yeah, the person I'd, who does I'd, the mind wipe. I'd say that's How many impossible. lines of dialogue does she have? All right, counter argument though. Go on. Isn't it also about um, Boomerang? Yes, and his son. Yeah, and Jack Drake. Right, so your counter argument is that this is a story about the murder and rape of a woman... In how it affects the men. No, I'm arguing it's not a story about the murder and rape of a woman. I'm saying it's about the loss of something and how that affects... The men? No. 
It does nothing in here about how it affects the women. Maybe, maybe I'm just a little more sexist than, than you know. And I admit, I, 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 honestly, I get where you're coming from. Yeah. But I think that that's kind of an easy complaint to go to go for. Okay, I'm not saying I agree with this complaint. I am playing devil's advocate to wind you up because when you get wound up, you give good arguments. See, I can, I can completely understand yeah. why you'd say that. But again, with the Satana thing, or maybe the Wonder Woman, there's not enough lines of dialogue. When you've got to cast this big. Mm. You know, Firestorm's only got a couple lines of dialogue. I'm not going to say it's sexist towards men. It's got a big cast, and you can't focus on more cast members than others. See, also, to, again, twist that around and play devil's advocate, when I read that criticism, the the criticism of it, the person who, who's, whose criticism of it was, this is this the women in this are completely inconsequential. You can argue a case that, yes, they are, but that's part of the story. Yeah, the story is um, how this affects Ralph, how this affects Ray Palmer, how this affects the Justice League, how the death of a superhero's wife would affect the married superheroes like Superman yeah. with Lois Lane. So, is there something inherently wrong? And again, this is just a question to ask the question: <laughs> yeah. Is there something inherently wrong with making a story that features the rape of a woman about the men? Mm. Or are we just living in an era where we're not allowed to do that anymore? It is kind of showing a side that isn't necessarily seen a bit more with stuff like that. Mm. Then at the same time, it's not about the people it affects at the Mm. end of the day. But, I mean, again, to counter that as well is whether you like it or not, what is the ratio of male and female DC characters? Mm. So it kind of is going to be more about the men when yeah. there's more men. Because you can argue a case here: Jean and Sue aren't members of the league. Yeah. So you've only really got Zatanna and Black Canary. Is it a Justice League story or is it yeah. a, a, a women's story? And I, I would argue that even though it does take that tack, that is a valid criticism. That it's a story that features that, but it's about how it affects the men. On the one hand, I am asking: Is there anything inherently wrong with but that? Then, is it necessarily about how it affects the men or is it about how it affects the league? It is how because, it affects the league, yeah, but we the, don't get any indication that Black Canary and Zatanna opposed the mind wiping. Do we? Maybe they didn't. No, it, but that's what I'm saying. So they go along with it. Yeah. So what would the role of the st- in the story have been then? If they hadn't gone along with it, that could have given them something interesting to do. They hadn't gone along with it. There isn't a story. There isn't a story, because Zatanna can't do the mind. Yeah. Piping, can't you? No, that was a criticism I read of this that I thought was interesting and worth bringing up in the, is this all about the men? Specifically in the league, generally. It's just, because it is a largely male-oriented story. Cast. Yeah. So then kind of saying... Well, it's 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 about men. It's kind of like saying, "Oh, I'm sorry that this issue of Spider Man is mostly about Spider Man." <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those. It's, it's an int- it's a valid criticism, but it's an easy criticism, and it also does beg the question: Well, what's wrong with exploring what the death and rape of your wife would do to a man? Mm. That's certainly a valid exploration. Well, not just that, but with the characters who say die, yeah. It kind of can't be about them anymore 
but they leave that lingering effect that yes. can affect other characters who it can be about. And then you've got the argument, though, that it's also about Jack and Tim Drake's relationship. It's about fathers and sons. Which is mirrored by yeah, Boomerang. Boomerang yeah. and Captain Boomerang and his son. Mm. So, the again, I think it is a male-orientated story in a medium that is primarily geared towards males. Yeah. Certainly superhero mm. comics, although there are a lot more female readers now than there used to be. I would be interested in hearing a balanced response on this from people about what they think about identity crisis and its relationship to male men and women. It's portrayal of gender. Yeah, it's portrayal of gender in relation to this specific storyline. Because I, I personally, I get the point, I take the criticism, mm. that the women in this are either there to die, there to be insane, or there to actually commit the act. Yeah. Because it's Zatanna who does that. But Wonder Woman features prominently on a number of these covers, but she doesn't feature prominently in the storyline at all. No, and it's a weird one that she is on them because just like, say, Superman or other high listers, hmm. it's not about them. No, I mean, it's specifically so not it's, about them. It's kind of a shame because like, you could use Wonder Woman as another character featured in it. Yeah. But because she is up there with Superman and all the other... You have to keep her untarnished. Yeah. Well, not just that, but the characters in it are hiding below the radar of these big characters. And it's a shame that Wonder Woman falls into the category of one of the big characters, because otherwise she could have been more of a part of it. And we never really get her reaction to what's gone on either. She never knows. No. Well, arguably, we don't get any of the big three's reaction in this story. You know, we get that whole thing about... Sorry, we get that whole thing about Green Arrow saying Superman hears what he wants to hear. I think that was enough, because there's a few panels where Superman has heard... See, but do you think that's a valid characterisation then, that he's heard it but not heard it? Because the, the implication here is he doesn't know about it, Batman doesn't know about it, and Wonder Woman doesn't know about it. I think the implication is more of Wonder Woman doesn't, hmm. Batman and Superman... Batman's been mind-wiped. Batman and Superman totally know what's going on. Batman doesn't know what or how, hmm. and Superman doesn't want to know what or how. Hmm. If you all I mean... It may not be the best answer, but if you're hearing rumours that your team and friends did something like that, Hmm. and you kind of don't want to have to do something about that because they are your friends, wouldn't you kind of pretend to not know about it? If Commissioner Gordon knew that his daughter was Batgirl, because he totally knows, but if he knew, he'd have to do something about it. If Superman knew what happened, he'd have to do something about it. Okay, all right, that's perfectly valid. Or maybe I'm just reading, making all that up, just from a couple of close-ups. Um, possibly. All right, so what do you think of the ending, or the middle of it, essentially, where we find out that not only has she just been murdered, but she was pregnant? Is that not a bit obvious? It's it's the gut punch, isn't it? Yeah. But it's a gut punch that doesn't go anywhere. There's There's nothing more. It's never mentioned again. And at no point does he say he's upset because of the, the death of his wife and unborn and child. child. Yeah. It's it's after this panel, it's completely forgotten about. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying to you. Was that necessary? Isn't him losing his wife enough for this story to work? Yeah, but it's, it's that common thing where you just got to punch it down enough to hammer the, the message, isn't See, it? See, I, I was more uncomfortable with that than pretty much anything else in, in the issue. I felt that was cliched and yeah. unnecessary. 
and if it it would have worked if yeah it if had it had any buried yeah. on the story yeah but because it didn't it's unnecessarily muddying the waters yeah there is no need for her to be pregnant for this story to have the impact that it does have and her being pregnant doesn't up the stakes or make it any more emotionally involving for the reader or for the elongated man it just feels like a cliched way of twisting the knife further yeah so I, I wasn't overly comfortable with that bit I felt that was crossing a line a little bit but then the thing with it is Maybe I would have been a little more annoyed about it had I even remembered that it happened by the end of the series. Yeah. Yeah, you're not wrong. It, it, it's here. It's her big birthday surprise to him that he's never going to guess. Yeah. And never mentioned again. Is it followed up anywhere else like in 52 or Infinite Crisis? I don't know. Because um, he is a main character in 52. Hmm. And I remember the ending because it's really quite sweet. Yeah. In that he dies... But the pair of them have advent mysteries together as ghosts. All right. Oh, that's quite nice. Yeah. But I don't remember the baby ever being a thing. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, there's a couple of nice touches as we go through the first issue. Uh, cross-cutting the attack on Sue with the case Flame Woman and Ralph on is really well done in terms of building suspense. Hmm. Um, another nice piece of setup, watching the news about Sue's death, Tim Drake with his dad. Yeah. Signposting it from very early on. Which again, it's 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 too easy to dismiss this as being hackneyed and cliched. Yeah. But the actual reading of it proves that to be false. Mm. There are there are bits of this where structurally it's incredibly well put together. Yeah. And incredibly well thought out. Well, it was written by a novelist. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things. That, that don't stack up, but we'll wait till we get to the end before we look at that. I did like that Sue's funeral is obviously a larger fur full of um, costumed people. No Batman, mm. for obvious reasons. Although Nightwing's, though. Yeah. So Nightwing's not an urban legend, but Batman is. Is Batman an urban legend, or is he just busy? Um, I don't know. Too busy to come to the funeral. I don't know. It could be either one of those things. Uh, nice moment at the end of Elongated Man literally being unable to hold himself together. Yeah. Uh, ruined by pointing it out in the next issue where uh, Ollie talks about... Uh, oh, no, it's in this first issue. Ralph could barely hold himself together, literally. Thanks, Ollie. Because well, we hadn't got that. Yeah, but if you're going to complain about that, they said he couldn't keep hold his form together even before that happened. Yeah, they did. But, you know, I mean, it's a nice visual as well, isn't it? Yeah. Somebody, it's, very, it's very buffy. Yeah. In its metaphor. Mm. He's literally holding himself together. The weird part for me with this issue is the introduction to the Atom and his ex-wife. Mm. What's her face? Jean Laurie. Yeah. Um, in that her motives, as we find out, is that she missed the Atom, right? Yeah. And wanted to be with him. Yeah. Yet she comes off as quite hard to get. Something tells me that if she'd have just spoken to him, she wouldn't have had to attack Sue Dibner. No. So this 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 scene is kind of nice, but ruins the reveal retroactively. Mm. Or the reveal ruins this even. Yeah, because she's the, signing... the whole the whole series could have been averted if she'd just been a bit less of a bitch. <laughs> I don't think you can say that she's a bitch. No, that's okay. That was more for the sake of of comedy. But yeah, yeah if she'd have just been 
I don't know, said what she was thinking. Yeah, maybe they'd have got back together. Yeah, yeah. She, the the lengths she goes to are unnecessary when she could have just spoken to him. Yes, um, it is. Because as we get through it, I don't entirely understand her motivation for going after Sue in that way anyway. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't quite get what her thinking was. I mean, and, we're and told, I packed extra weapons just in just in case. What? Yeah, I'm going to take a flamethrower with you me. You had to knock her teeth and pull her nails off yeah. as well. Well, that was the thing I was just. Well, we may as well talk about that. That was the thing I was just talking about. That uh, uh, as it turns out, the reveal that Gene Loring did it. Spoilers. We've already said. Yeah. So um, the the big reveal turns out that Gene Loring did it. Yeah. And she took weapons with her just in case, but she had no intention of killing her. One of those weapons was a flamethrower. I don't know about you, but when I'm packing Clearly weapons to go out and murder somebody, yeah, <laughs> the first thing I think to plan when I'm going out to not murder somebody <laughs> yeah. is to pack a flamethrower. Just in case I mess up, yeah. I might want to... I may want to burn the body of the person that I'm going out to not, not kill. <laughs> yeah. That was the bit that really struck me as dumb when I got to the end of it. Uh, we'll, I mean, we'll get there when we get there, yeah. but... Everything, I think a lot is ruined by that poor reveal. By that reveal. poor reveal. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Um, one of the interesting things, or certainly interesting for us as a talking part, is comic book fans. Ralph states that he and Sue have been married for nearly 20 years. Which means Superman and Batman have been around at least that long. Which would put them both in their 40s. Which mm. has severe implications on the rest of the DCU. Because that would mean Ollie's in his 50s. Now, I don't have a problem with that. I like them all being a little bit older. Yeah. Because I think it gives the DC Universe some um, some weight. Especially when it features legacy characters yeah. like Cal Rain. Yeah, really well. so to have that history behind them, I think that's perfectly fine. I can't say that I think that the, uh, the creators really thought that through. No. But it does have that kind of golden agey feeling that say um justice had yeah and then it featured these legacy characters and it had age and that depth so it, it did work especially now that none of this matters anymore yeah but at the same time this you can't tell the story again now no but also in the button storyline that just ran through the batman and the flash hmm. the there is a panel from this comic so is this oh. back in continuity or oh, will it be... No, that's just the... the. Um... Yeah. When the Flash is doing it, he says that's not how the League was was formed. No, it's DC keep doing this. And like they did it a lot in Justice League. as like a kind of... They bring up stuff that happened in all the other continuities to kind of say that, well, they kind of happened, but didn't. But mm. if you want to believe that they did, then they did put in another continuity. Well, that's exactly what it felt like with the book. Because yeah. what was it? The Dark Side War, I think it was. Had pan- George Perez panels from Crisis. Yeah. It had Phil Jimenez panels from Infinite. Right. It had whatever. So it showed all of these other ones, hmm. saying it's kind of out of time, but in time. So DC have done that loads ever since the new 52. Right. So it's it's back in or not back in, depending on how this whole button watchman of, thing turns I'm out. I'm assuming it's just their way of saying it happened, so read it. Mm. But if you just want to follow Rebirth stuff, it didn't happen. Right. It happened in one of our many multiverses that we brought yeah, back. Yeah, multi-timelines. All right. Because multiverses isn't enough anymore. It's now multi-time as well. Yeah. Oh, that's hard. What was, what was hyper-time? 
That was something completely different, wasn't it? Yeah. Right, yeah, okay, fair enough. Hyper-chrono. Um, one of the other things that I wanted to, to point out was um, my main memory of Dr. Light is from the Wolfman Perez Teen Titans run where he's portrayed as a bit of a buffoon. Um, it's a severe retcon that he's an evil bastard before Zatanna got hold of him and rearranged his mind. And again... To turn him into a buffoon. Yeah, he was he was much more than he was than we saw in those Silver Age and Bronze Age stories. Mm. And Zatanna did that to him. And again, the scene where Light Rape Sue is horrific in all the right ways. It's expertly written. Yeah. It's very well drawn. Because um, it should be horrifying uh, rather than titillating, mm. which it is. You know, most of it is off camera, as it should be. And now, I'm not someone who doesn't, who thinks that we shouldn't tackle uncomfortable scenes like this in fiction. Yeah. Uh, and taken on its own merits, this is depicted as um, a, a heinous act. Mm-hmm. What we see Dr. Light do here thoroughly justifies the League's actions in many ways. Although you can you it, can question... It provokes them into a yeah. debate. Yeah. You know, regardless of how you feel about them, it's enough to provoke that. Hmm. But it does raise the question of whether this should be depicted in superhero fiction. Now, I know these things aren't for kids and haven't been for years. Well, is this a bridge too far to have Dr. Light rape Sue Dibner? No. Okay. I, I don't, because for me, I'm a big fan of mature superhero titles. Mm-hmm. Um, Invincible, for example. Yeah, but they're features... not characters that have featured in Super Friends cartoons. Right, but neither are these, arguably. Are you sure Dr. Light wasn't in a Super Friends cartoon? No, 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 but what I'm saying is Dr. Light may have been in Super Friends, mm. but this Dr. Light wasn't. Right. And it's kind of like, there's no way that you'd give this to a kid, but you could show them Dr. Light in Teen Titans or whatever, mm. and that would be that characterization of it. Right. It's, it's kind of like... But then when they read this when they're older, they can go, oh, right. Yeah, so it's kind of like every person who's ever written Batman has their own characterization of Batman. Right. But nobody ever complains when he's characterized in a certain way, saying, well, that's not how he was depicted in this. Mm. So Dr. Light's depicted as a rapist in this, mm. but people are complaining about it. It's kind of like... Do you know what I mean? Are they more complaining, though, that would it have been enough for him to show up on the satellite and maybe smack her around a bit, but not rape her? But then, do you have a strong enough story to to justify the mind wipe? To just well, to justify the Justice League tearing apart. Um, this, you've got to have something that big for it. And at the same time, Doctor Light's a bad guy. I don't think I'm shocked to find out that a bad guy is also a rapist. It's, is a bad guy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something. I think Morrison might have played with it a bit. Too much unnecessarily in Final Crisis right. with one of his Morrisonisms, but so you... as the first groundbreaking thing, I don't think it's overly out of character for what they want to tell. See, I think rape is one of those things that's a subject that should be tackled, but if you're going to tackle it, you should do it with great care. Mm. And I'm not sure that this 
is because it's never made clear if they mind wipe Sue so that she doesn't remember this. But Ralph would remember it and know that it happened. He does because he brings it up. Yeah, he does. And he, he says, we took her straight to the hospital. Well, they don't mind wipe him because of the rape, do they? They mind wipe him because he knows the location and the secret identities of Justice League and family members. And that he'll do it again. Yeah, they they alter his personality because they f- believe he'll do it again. Yeah. They do two different things to him for two different reasons. Mm. Because it's when he starts threatening and saying that, you know, Sue Dibney will be in the, the phone book. Mm. I can find her again. And then he says to the Flash, do I spot a wedding ring bulging under that costume? Maybe I'll go after her next. So, yeah, so they wipe his mind to get rid of his knowledge. Mm. But then at the same time, he's proven that he can do it, so he would totally do it again. So that's why they alter his personality. And you argue that they need something that heinous for the story to even work. For this story, yeah. Because right. you can't have, oh, I beat her up and I know who she is. Right. Oh, okay. we'll, we'll mind wipe you. No, you won't. Oh, we'll have a massive fallout. It doesn't quite have the same gravity. No. I'm not saying I like what happened happening, mm. but you've got to have a big shock factor to have the Justice League fell apart over it. Yeah, because you can argue Oliver Queen's characterisation is therefore a little bit off. Because mm. Oliver Queen is is uber liberal. I think doesn't he mention it to everyone he's introduced to? Yeah, pretty much. I think the only thing that might be a bit of a problem is them targeting the the big innocent happy couple, mm. which probably again is why they specifically picked them. You know, like how that couple they've always been happy, they've always been bright, mm. they've always been innocent, so they kind of make the easy and strongest affected target. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like you always pick on the character that the audience is going to feel the most sympathy for. Yeah, so it's like, oh, why would you do that to a beloved character? Because it's a beloved character. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's it's very interesting that it's Ollie who does say who says it was the only one. Mm. It's Ollie who gives the game away that they did this more this once. So there's something very interesting in exploring that with the character of Oliver Queen, because he's the poster child for bleeding heart liberal. Yeah, if Ollie had just shut his mouth, no one yeah. would know. Carter Hall's un- understand undoubtedly a hardline conservative. I mean, if such a thing happens on Thanagar. And yet both men agree with how to handle Dr. Light. Mm. Now, it's it's interesting to tackle that with somebody like Green Arrow, who was the subject of a mature readers-only book yeah. following Crisis on Infinite Earths. And you can argue that it's interesting to follow it up with Hawkman as well. Does that, by definition, make these characters a little bit more interesting than Superman or Batman. You know, characters are very rigid definitions of what is black and what is white. Hmm. I don't know. I don't I don't object so much to them doing this with Green Arrow. All it does make him seem a little bit of a bastard. But Mike Grell made him a bastard when he was doing the Green Arrow post-crisis. Yeah, and does the situation not call him to be a bit a bastard. of a bastard about it? He's got to be the one who makes the hard decisions because no one else will do. Yeah. Possibly. I mean, it's all interesting food for thought. Um, I think it's one of those things, we've got to look at this as taking on its own merits and 
in relation to the wider DCU, does having Sue Dibney being raped by Dr. Light make the DC universe better? It doesn't make it better, but it makes it the mature universe they wanted it to be. But then that's the point, isn't it? That's what Didio wanted DC yeah. to be. Which led into Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman and Suicide Squad. But it's one of those things where if you want to make it mature and gritty, you can't pick and choose what makes it mature and gritty. No. You've got to kind of accept it all. And you've got to kind of embrace the whole thing. Yeah, and what's... When you look at it objectively, what's more mature? Hmm. A story about how death and rape affects families Hmm. of the DC Universe or is a story about just... Destruction porn, mature. Right. Well, it's. I've actually got a note written here. Why do I accept this easily, more easily than I accept since past? Probably because you didn't care about these characters as much as Gwen Stacy. Well, that's probably a valid point. But also, the other thing that I think about that is that DC's got a very pick-and-mix attitude to its continuity. Mm. So that happened, that didn't, that didn't. So when Meltzler goes back and says, well, that Silver Edge, Golden Edge, Bronze Edge, whatever Justice League story that you saw happen, this happened after that. Yeah. You're kind of like, oh, okay. Because I have no idea if this Injustice League story that they mention in this issue, Mm. where they took over the bodies and then took the masks off and looked at who they were. I have no idea if that happened. Well, it reminds me somewhat of Grant Morrison's Batman run. Mm. And that every single Batman issue happened. And yeah, so it's, somewhere at some time. Yeah, so this is kind of a similar vein in that all these Justice League stories happened and he's using that to reinforce the story and to give it a history that he can work with. Yeah. But I mean, whereas with with the Spider-Man with Sin's past, there is nowhere that that story could happen. Mm. And also, he, he changes the characterization of the people in the story to make his story work. You could I, argue they do that with this to an extent. You can, but I would argue he's working on the changed Green Arrow characterization that DC have already established. Yeah. He Instead didn't make Green Arrow the hard ass in this. Mm. That was set up by Mike Grell yeah. following the Longbow Hunters. So essentially what Meltzler's doing here is taking gr- that Green Arrow and just making him the guy who will make the hard decisions because no one else will. Yeah. But it's not out of character for the post-crisis Green Arrow to do that, mm. where it was completely out of character for Gwen Stacy to go and shag Norman Osborn, well, a man she barely talked to. Unlike Sin's past as well, uh, in that, oh, how come, like, you know, I've never heard this story and all this stuff. There's a reason why this is only coming out now. Yes. You know, those stories were, oh, remember my long-lost brother? Like, <laughs> when's this been? A, this kind of works. When because, did my long-lost twin from England come from? Yeah, this kind of works because the whole point of the story yep. is that it's never been mentioned before. Mm. The catalyst for this is Sue's murder. So, again, if Jean had just spoke to Ray and maybe patched up their differences... Not only would she not have disrupted Elongated Man and G- uh, Sue's life, but all the, the Justice would would be friends. Yeah, she wouldn't have caused Identity Crisis, mm-hmm. which wouldn't have caused Infinite Crisis, which wouldn't have caused Fifty Two. Probably would have still called. Well, maybe, but the vast majority of what happened in the DC universe post Identity Crisis was down to this series. This was the opening salvo of the dark and gritty. DCU that happened in the late arts and it started here really is it its fault though 
yes and no. I don't believe it is. Well, no, it isn't, because the guy in charge yeah. asked a writer to write this story, mm. and he wrote the story that the guy in charge wanted, yeah. putting them on the path of the direction that the guy in charge wanted them to go in. Well, this put them on the path to do the Justice League ongoing series. Yeah. And then Jeff Johns and the guy in charge said, oh, well, maybe we'll do this and then make it even even more darker. Mm. Yeah. So, see, on the one hand, then, this is all at Dan DiDio's feet, isn't it? He's the one who wanted to make the DC Universe a darker, grimmer place. Mm. Again, and following post-9-11. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's gotten to the point where now on the other side It became side it, laughable. Yeah, now it? we're looking at the start, and now we're, we're past the, the ending a bit. Yeah. It did get ridiculous, turn some lights on. Yes. <laughs> so, and again, they, they were always promising you a light at the end of the tunnel, and that light never came. Well, even in this, as dark as this gets, it's still a hopeful... You know, light story in places in its character beats. Mm. So even this kind of balanced it out better than they would do later on. Yeah, like you say, there is a reason for this story to be as grim as it is. Mm. It's it becomes whether or not you think that that grim is earned and deserved and worth it, and. Like I say, I didn't have anywhere near the problem with this as a story as I did with Sin's past as a story. And it could be, like you said, I don't really care. That's not true. The story makes you care about the elongated man. and You so, were never as invested yeah, before this. But before this story, I wasn't invested in the elongated man yeah. at all. I knew who he was, and that's as far as it went. Mm. So, that that yeah, that, that could be... That could be the point, because this series really is the poster child for taking superhero fights and overdoing the blood and the guts. The opening fight scene between the League and Deathstroke, it is good. And I actually buy Deathstroke as being a totally credible threat. I didn't get Green Arrow attacking him and stabbing him in his bad eye. I totally believe this Green Arrow would stab him in his good eye, given the position he finds himself in there. And he doesn't do that purely because they don't want to get rid of Deathstroke as a good villain. Well, is that the only reason or not just because he's just an obstacle in the way, not the target? Yeah, he is, but he's he's trashed the Justice League. Yeah. And you're talking about an Ollie Queen here who throughout this story is the advocate for mind wiping. He's the instigator of the incident. He's the one who says, let's put it to a vote. Right. He's the one who advocates mind-wiping the f- Batman. So this would have been better had it been someone else stabbing him in the wrong eye. Yeah, somebody who actually has some morals. Because I don't believe at this point that Green Arrow has any. And I totally believe that the Green Arrow of this story, in that position, would stab Deathstroke in his good eye. See, and I, he's out the fight. I disagree that he doesn't have any morals. Yeah, alright, maybe that's going a bit far. But yeah. do you think he wouldn't? He's got a choice to take him down forever. I suppose. You know, Deathstroke's no good to anyone if he's blind. They didn't come here, though, to take him down forever. But he's got the opportunity to do it. Alright, okay. Alright. You see what I mean, though? That's my idea, anyway. You know, that's what I think. I mean, I know fights like this would be bloody. But I don't know that you necessarily have to see it be this bloody in a superhero fight. But like you, sir, 
if you're going to embrace grim and realistic and mature, then you have to embrace grim and realistic and mature. Mm. And so the fight scenes in this will be of a higher level of grim than perhaps we've seen before. And I, I, I do prefer that. It gives it a lot more kind of depth than just a pow, bam. Yeah, and, again, I think what, it's a case-by-case case basis. What Invincible always did, again, for yeah, example. Yeah, the, the fights in that are brutal. Yeah, and I, for me, everyone should read Invincible as how mature superhero stories should be told. Hmm. I think the only, again, like you said, that's just because it's their own characters. Yeah, and Robert Kirkman can do what he wants with it. Whereas with this, if mature is done properly, properly hmm. there's nothing wrong with having bloody and brutal fight scenes and again it's a green arrow that was a mature reader's title yeah for a long time on a case-by-case basis i don't think there should be this level of blood and gore in a spider-man story yeah for example mm. but in a green arrow story the guy puts arrows through people's heads yeah you know i mean he may not kill them but he certainly hurts them so uh, yeah Okay, fair enough. Um, just leafing through the issue. There's a lot There's a lot to unpack in this if we had, like, forever to do what we want. Uh, the issue ends with Meltzer killing another woman. <laughs> That's a bit glib, yeah, really, yeah. isn't it? It's Gene Loring gets um, hung at the end of this one, and we don't actually know the hows and the whys or the wherefores, obviously. Because there are not. <laughs> because there are not, no. But uh, my favourite bit through this issue is um, there are identity crisis action figures. So we can actually play Dr. Light raping Sue Dibner. Yeah. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, maybe not. Why is why is Zatanna wearing a different costume? Her action figure is a different costume no, to the ones on the cover. That's her flashback costume. Oh, right. In the flashbacks, that's what she's wearing. Oh, right, because at that era of the Justice League, she was in the funny purple thing with the salmon on her head. Yeah. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Okay. I mean, the action figures look... Look nice, don't they? It seems okay. Uh, the Atom arrives just in time to save Jean from choking to death. I did like how he cut the noose down. With science. I thought that was really good. He jumps into the middle of the, the rope and then just expands himself. Yeah. So that the rope frays instantly. So that was that was cool. I ended up coming out of this thinking that the Atom was actually a pretty cool character. Mm. Rather than just a knockoff Ant-Man. Even though I know Ant-Man came for came after the Atom, don't write in and, and tell us that. Uh, it's only at this point, really, that the League go for a full investigation, isn't it? Oh, this bit's a bit silly as well in hindsight, isn't it? Why? Um, the the knot they establish is a is a Boy Scout knot, right? Yeah. Uh, done by Slipknot, the man who can climb anything. <laughs> so, uh, Sue, not Sue, Gene. Gene knows who Slipknot is, yep. knows that one of Slipknot's quirks is that he ties Slipknot's in a Boy Scout way, yep. and so does that to herself. Yeah. Perfectly normal. Yeah. I... <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it is a bit dark. I mean, the, the, there's an uh, there's a humorous moment. Right. Which is worth pointing out. Yeah. Um, Superman's the one that spots what the bow is. The knot is, sorry. Uh, says it's a common Boy Scout knot. Green Arrow Boy Scout. Right. Yeah. Funny. A funny moment in an otherwise not terribly funny storyline, I think. Um, interestingly, throughout this entire story, the characters refer to the killer as a he, which I presume is deliberate misdirection. Yeah. 
Yeah, I noticed that as well at one mm. point. But it's, just... it's Mr. Miracle who says, how do we know it's a he? Yeah, but it's it's that kind of... You kind of always assume that it's a he. Yeah. If it's, you know, a female victim. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. It's a very different characterization for Superman as of this issue. He's not in control. So he feels useless. Yeah, there. it's a very interesting position... To put him in, especially seen as the pattern so far is spouses or ex-spouses. I mean, I've got no idea if the Atom's idea is, pu- is public knowledge. Right. But Ralph's was, and this is putting Superman Edge because of his marriage to Lois. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting. Well, another one of the, the themes of the story is the secret identity as well, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah, the, the reason that they have secret identities. Yeah. Which, you know, Bendis doesn't... Um, adhere to in any way, does he? He doesn't mm. think secret identity would work in the real world. Well, Yet to, neither would a guy dressed up as a frigging bat. To an extent, this story also shows that secret identities don't work. They've had to work to, to keep them. Yeah. Because they've, they've mind-wiped a lot more people than just the two <laughs> just Dr. Light. primarily features. Yeah, yeah, yeah alright. Yeah, that's a valid... So the length, you will have to go to a certain length to keep that secret. Mm. Alright. Okay, that's fair. It is one of the themes of the story. That's very true. Um, and obviously, Jack has just recently learned out that Tim Drake is Robin. Yeah. And that ends badly for him. Mm. So, yeah, okay. I do like that Meltzler saves Batman's appearance until it's looking really, really bleak. Yeah. Batman just shows up in the middle of this and he's starting to investigate what's going on. Because, um, like you say, he's been busy. Yeah, I really like the scene with um, Hal Jordan as well. As Now, at the moment, he's currently the Spectre. Yes. Yeah. Especially since, if I recall, uh, the Spectre kills Gene in one of the Infinite Crisis tie-ins. Does he? No, I don't know if he kills her, but I know that she's heavily featured in the story that he... So is in. that after this? Yeah, because right. she goes back guano. Which, what, and she isn't in this? No, like, mental. Right, really if I, mental. Because I've only ever read it once, but if I remember correctly. Right. Okay, yeah, that's, that's fair. I do like the bit where um, he actually says, Ollie asks Hal, when's he coming back? Yeah. Really coming back. And he says, I'm working on it. So is that setting up Rebirth? Green I don't know if Rebirth. it's setting up Rebirth. Is more well, when was Green Lantern Rebirth? If this was 2004? It's about a year after. Yeah, so it can't be far away. Yeah, but is it them setting it up or is it them joking that death hasn't been the end for them? Yeah, because they've Green already... Arrow brings up... Yeah, they have... And they have made a joke in this about um, what was Donna Troy's name post crisis. She wasn't Wonder Girl anymore, was oh, she? I don't know. Troika, Troya, mm. something like that. And um, they actually say Troya's dead. Yeah, she's dead. And one of them says she'll be back. Yeah. So they do actually make a joke about death's revolving door in a story in which the main death isn't reversed. Yeah. Or hasn't been reversed. Well, what's the rebirth? situation with the elongated man is he alive is he is sue alive i've no idea i've not i don't even recall if we've seen him in rebirth i really liked their ending in 52 so you would like that to stick yeah but at the same time you can't you know that that's in another continuity like everything else yeah well one of the things melsler said didio gave him his his hit list um is that really the best way like think of it from a business or even a storytelling point of view having a hit list that you've got to write a story around well that's is, is poor like that's what Meltzer said essentially he did kill off a character we'll talk about that when we get into issue five in a moment yeah but the hit list 
apparently uh, included the Atom and the Martian Manhunter. Which well. begs the question, what was Dan DiDio's obsession with killing his characters off? The Atom would go into hiding, wouldn't he? Yeah. And they would kill off Martian Manhunter in Final Crisis. Right, so... Unless... <laughs> what was, what's the point? DiDio has a, a general hit list up in the DC offices. Yeah. And you, you kind of like write your name next to who you want to kill off in your story. Yeah. I mean, but what, what was his obsession with doing that? Shake things up. Because a bit. didn't they have a hit list, a death list for Final Crisis as well? Uh, they had one for Infinite Crisis because right. they wanted to kill off Nightwing. Yeah, and then end up being Superboy. It's, and it's, I don't, I don't understand how you could be in charge of your pump, publishing company, and then just want to kill them all off. Who does that leave you with? People who did your likes. <laughs> <laughs> what, you can't kill Batman or Superman? Yeah, oh, I never liked Martian Manhunter when I was growing up. Kill him off. Yeah, possibly. I mean, the reason... Meltzler refused right. to kill anyone off. His feeling being it would take away from what the story is really about. Yeah. And the next writer that comes along would only bring them back anywhere. Yeah. So, what's the point? Um, the death in issue... Fi- oh, okay, it's Firestorm. The death of Firestorm... <laughs> In the next issue that we're going to look at, issue five, he was interested in that purely from the nonchalant way that it happens. Like a firefighter goes to fight a fire and thinks it's just going to be another day at the office and ends up dying. He was interested in approaching that as a theme, an almost incidental death. Yeah. Rather than being a point of the series. Because it adds credibility to the argument that as a superhero every day is your every last. day is could be potentially be your last yeah so he, he he didn't because he also felt that if he did kill off like the atom of the martian manhunter the series would become about that yeah and that's not what he wanted the story to be about it's still a weird one in how nonchalant it is yes i mean it he, is even if that was the approach they wanted to take it's still just a nonchalant death of a, of a beloved yeah. character it's it's firestorms doing something he gets stabbed accidentally Mm. No one thinks anything of it until a couple of pages later when Firestorm's like, I'm going to blow up. And you know what happens when you puncture a nuclear reactor? It's going to explode. Mm. And he just takes himself off into the upper atmosphere so his, his death doesn't hurt anyone else. Yeah. And it is really quick and really just out the way. Never really referenced again. I mean, I, don't, I have no idea which Firestorm this is, do you? I don't know. Is this Ronnie Raymond? Could be, because doesn't he come back in Blackest Night? Probably. <laughs> that's that's what we're joking about, isn't it? Everything comes back, as we've seen. Um, this issue generally was the most unusual one of the lot. It, all of the issues about loss yeah, and how it affects people. This issue is about fathers and sons. Mm. This is about Jack and Tim Drake trying to connect. And it's about Captain Boomerang having found his son. Um, I, I forget. Did he know that he's existed for a while and not really? Yeah, he's not really made a connection with him. He's decided to get in touch with him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, it's actually quite touching again that Captain Boomerang wants to do this relationship with his son. It's never made clear. Is he? Has he been hired to kill Jack? Yes. Right. Okay. 
because Gene hires him. Yes, that's mentioned in the next issue, isn't yeah. it? When um, because that's, calculator that's perfectly yeah uh, legit as well. Yes, he, he she hires a, a low bar. I only, I only accidentally meant to to hire someone well, to kill him. That's ridiculous. When we get to that at the end, isn't it? I've just tell, you've mentioned it now. She didn't mean to kill Sue. Yeah. She didn't mean to kill herself, obviously. That was all a setup. She did mean to hire Boomerang to kill Tim's dad. But, but she sent Jack she also a gun intended, yeah. so that Jack could defend himself because Captain Boomerang's a bit of a loser. Yeah. So she wanted Jack to shoot Captain Boomerang. Yeah, I think I would rather her just to say, yeah, I'm a bit batshit. This is all, <laughs> you know, I, I like it. It, it, it the, the big reveal does kind of fall to part, apart, doesn't it? Yeah. Although... The scene where Batman's driving as fast as he can... To get back to Jack's house. ...is great. It is. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. Especially seeing as you actually see Batman looked panicked. Because it's out of his control as yeah. well. So, you know, and I love that the bat the Batmobile's squealing the wrong direction because they're always going in the wrong direction. But in this one, it makes sense. Because they were just control, leaving yeah. the area, yeah. So all that... It, it, again, it's a really tense and well-written issue. And you can see when you're rereading it as a clump like this that Meltzer has been setting up Jack Drake's death from the very beginning. Yeah. That is one of those things that you're like, why did I not spot this when you read it the first time through? Um, ultimately, I think this did more damage to Tim Drake's character because one of the things that was good about him was he, he wasn't, wasn't an like orphan. everyone else, yeah. But, like you say, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. None of this matters anymore, does it? So you're able to to just look at it as a as a story in and of itself. It was a good ending though, wasn't it? Where Captain Boomerang gets uh, in his death throes throws off the razor rank. See, I don't know, I thought the parallels with the Boomerang family and the Robin family. Did you think that was a bit heavy-handed? Yeah, if they weren't already obvious enough, having them kill each other was mm. was definitely the very bloody knot that tied it together. Mm. That I thought was maybe a bit too neat. I mean, from a storytelling point of view, this is very well-paced. It's very exciting. Yeah. It's very dynamic. You know, Robin gets the call from Oracle, something's up, Batman floors the Batmobile... The cuts between Jack and Robin is, is good storytelling because we know Batman's not going to make it in time. Yeah, this is his death of Gwen Stacy. Mm. He's not the he's not quick enough to be able to prevent this from happening. But you're still seeing characters like Batman in a way you've not seen them before. Yeah, the the idea that there is for all the godlike qualities, which Some is something are out of reach. Yeah, something that the DC characters had over the Marvel ones, mm. they are still mortal and fallible. Your Marvel characters had feet of clay, but the DC characters didn't. Mm. And it's it's interesting from that point of view. Batman's not quick enough to get there, you know. And this is also probably the most shockingly effective issue of the lot. Yeah. In addition to issue one, which is undeniably tense, this is really fast-paced and, again... The feeling of foreboding that Meltzler builds into the story and the idea that you want this to have a different outcome but doesn't... It's all very well written. Yes. I am confused as to how long Sue's autopsy's taken. Well, doesn't 
whoever's doing it mentioned that her body started to decompose. Yeah, it's Doctor Midnight, isn't it? Doing yeah, the, doing the actual what's his name. At the same time, they are obsessed with finding what it was, and they just can't find it. Hmm. So it makes sense for them to keep going until they do find out what happened. Yeah. Decomposing be damned, they're not going to stop We need to keep until, investigating. Because yeah. it's only the microscopic analysis of the brain that is a last-minute thing, isn't it? But I also felt at the same time with that, every issue, it's a... Uh, hmm, we found a new revelation. This killed her off. Next issue. No, that no, didn't do it. it we found that. a new revelation. Hmm. It's like, how long can we pad out the autopsy to run simultaneously with the murderer's reveal? Yeah, because how long is this taking over a period of time? Because there's a number of funerals. It's about a week, isn't it? Yeah, so that autopsy took a week? It must be really cold in there. Mm, okay, I suppose so. I do look the the scene where Ollie confesses to mind-wiping Batman is actually really good. Hmm. It doesn't resolve itself in this, isn't that? Doesn't that? I think it's Infinite Crisis. Is that Infinite Crisis he, that leads to the OMAC project? He makes the OMAC because he doesn't trust anyone anymore. Yeah. Which can you blame him? Not after this. No. I, did. I mean, our memory of that story is Batman's been a or a dick, monitoring everyone. But yeah. then you th- then you read this and you go, well, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. But what I thought was a bit flimsy about this though is the Flash saw an imprint of a memory that Dr. Flash might have remembered, Hmm. Dr. Light might have remembered. That felt a little bit too flimsy for me just to get the Batman revelation out. Yeah, it is. Wally needed to find out that Ollie, Wally and Ollie, had um, wiped Batman because that's setting up future story strands. Yeah. Because it's not resolved in this at all. But yeah, how it's done. I think I think you can argue a case that this is where it starts going off the rails a little bit, isn't it? Mm. And Ollie's justification to doing it is that you know they're animals. Yeah, and it's taking a lot of the DC pantheon of villains and just elevating them slightly, because there is that feeling that a lot of the DC villains, no matter how good they are, were slightly goofy. Yeah. Even the Flash, who has what the second best rogues gallery in comedy, no, the third <laughs> right. after Batman and Spider Man. Okay, but Spider Man's villains were as goofy as the Green Goblin could be. Mm. They were still threats. Yeah. Whereas you know, Doctor Light was a laugh, and well, Mirror Master was a laugh. And... I suppose it's one of the good things about this as well is if you're gonna treat it like every day could be your last, mm. then every villain needs to be the one that could make it your last. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no such thing as a goofy bad guy. But then, I think there's also the flip side is... One of the things against the whole lobotomizing thing is... Batman doesn't kill people, the bad guys, right? Hmm. Bad guys are all murderers, but Batman doesn't murder because that's what separates them. Yeah. So what separates the Justice League from the villains if they're perfectly fine with lobotomizing them? Nothing. Yeah. So you, you, that's the grey area that you start stepping into, and that's why they keep Superman and Batman out of it, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. I mean, the the finding of the two footprints in the brain, someone was standing in there, and they automatically think it's the atom. Well, it's what you're going to, aren't you? Yeah, that's the first person that you're going to think to. But um, Batman almost instantly knows it isn't the atom, doesn't he? Yeah. 
Well, I like this last scene as well, these two pages. Mm. At no point does it say that he's the murderer, but you kind of read it as though he is. Yeah. This issue, because he's shaded heavily, he's looking in the mirror, and uh, who do kill Sue? That's who attacked me, Captain Boomerang, and he's, he's been trying to kill us for years. Yeah. And it's, he certainly writes the last two issues of it, per pages, sorry, of issue six, as though Ray is the killer. But does he write it like that, or do you think... Is that what you're reading into it? Yeah. yeah possibly. I don't know. I mean, I do think you're definitely led to believe closing issue six that that's who the killer is. Oh, yeah. And that it's Ray Palmer. Um, so issue seven's the big wrap-up, mm. which is astonishingly disappointing. It really is. It's like two minutes to read as well. Yeah, well, it's from a narrative point of view, it feels like everybody reaches the conclusion at the same time. Yeah. After an autopsy that seems to have taken weeks. Yeah. And lots of other deaths and investigations. Like, what the hell has Batman been doing? Just running around in subways looking for the calculator. Yeah, well, apparently so. And then nothing. We don't even get Jean... We don't even see her get see, see her get sent to Arkham. Yeah. That's an off-panel thing. We don't see the reactions to the other characters. Mm. So the reaction to it being Jean... We don't get any real motivation for her actions other than she wanted to get back with her ex-husband. And there's no kind of character progression. She's She wants the sympathy for doing these things out of desperation and then she goes crazy. Yeah. There's no turning crazy. She isn't, despite she totally is. doing crazy things. Yeah. And then she is crazy. Yeah, and it's like... So where did this come from? I, I, I don't know. Because uh, the motivation, despite being crazy, mm. it's sound motivation. Had Meltzer shown her to be like that in the previous scenes? But he didn't, because yeah. to do that would be to signpost who the bad guy was. Or just don't have your bad guy be a silly bad guy. Yeah, so it's it's a weird one, isn't it? It's like the ending really does diminish the rest of the story. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any logical sense. Because even with its flaws, it's a sound story on a, a, yeah. a, mis- a mystery and a personal emotional Yeah, it's level. very well structured. It's got a great build-up. It's much more intriguing as a mystery than, say, Hush or The Long Halloween, where yeah. Hush had one suspect. Mm. this all the way through it you're going well who did this then all right so it wasn't him and it wasn't them yeah and you're trying to piece it together as you go along my thinking is you take this issue away Mm. and you read all six issues i don't think you would come to the conclusion that gene loring did this no i don't think there's enough clues in the six issues to lead you to the idea of who the murderer was. Well, it's not just that there's not enough clues to tell you that that's who the murderer is. That's just not who the murderer is. <laughs> the story says that's the murderer, but it's it's another left field. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't... It really doesn't, does it? No. And so... It is, it is kind of another long Halloween when you're like... No, that's not who the murderer is. Yes, it is, because I'm Brad Meltzer, and this is who the murderer is. No, it's not Brad. Shut up. Yeah. it's You're expecting there to be a last-minute twist 
whereby we learn that Gene has been manipulated somehow (laughs) into either doing this or thinking that she's done this. And there's actually somebody behind it who makes more logical sense. Mm. Because this just didn't, did it? I mean, even reading it this time, when you know Gene Loring is the killer... Yeah, it just doesn't work. No. It feels like they were going for the more of a loss of the innocence. Yeah. That's what they've been going for the entire way through, and then you're like, no, let's do this again. But it didn't work the last time around. Hmm. I mean, it's it's ultimately a tough one to reconcile by the time you get to the end. On the one hand, it is very well structured. It has an excellent build-up. It's only in the last issue it really falls to bits. But on the other, does a story this nihilistic involving superheroes that are as bad as the villains that involves rape graphic violence that involves a superhero as liberal as Green Arrow being okay with corporal punishment does this kind of story real belong in a DC Comics superhero story or is it better being Watchmen or Invincible or Vertigo I would argue that it has to be a superhero story because it would lose any gravity or strength or importance were these not beloved established characters Invincible only started tackling these themes into its 100 issues Right. there's no way that a standalone story could be just as heavy on themes as this without it being these with characters. characters that you're not bringing baggage to yeah because to be fair of the characters that aren't Superman Batman you know the big ones he does do a good job of characterising Ralph and Sue. and yeah, well, Which is why the Justice League stuff which came after this was great. Because hmm. it did give you those backgrounds behind the smaller characters. So how long did Meltzer write Justice League for? About three or four years? I think he wasn't on it for long, did was he? Did he do about 20 issues or so? Yeah. I may dig him out again and read Cause him. Because I've got him. Dwayne McDuffie take over? Yeah, Dwayne McDuffie took over with an Injustice League story, which I still don't have all of. Mm. Which I keep meaning to, to finish that run. Um, but did this add anything to DC Comics? Yeah, in the long term, it did, didn't it? Yeah. It did add something to the, the firmament. But did this lead to Civil War and other darker stories like that that leave a bad taste in the mouth? And again, yeah, it did. But it's not the fault of this story. It's not because Civil War is in no way as well written as this is. Even with the naff ending. Yeah. Before you get to the NAF ending, it's well written, it's well structured. The characters aren't overly out of character. Like I've said, Oliver Queen has been established as being a mature uh, title since Crisis. Well, I mean, this was the first one to start it and others were were influenced by it. Mm. If a kid watches something on TV and then repeats it, any smart person wouldn't blame the kid. Well, wouldn't blame the TV, TV. they'd blame the kid, yeah. So, this shouldn't be blamed for Mark Miller writing stories about blowing up schools. No, and we have said that Frank Miller shouldn't be blamed for Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. To everyone that's followed him, who thinks that that's, that's a Batman. Um, apart from the last issue, these last couple of pages I thought I really liked as well. Yeah. It's... Ralph still talking to Sue. Yeah, someone... Who is it? Is it Hartman who tells him to talk to her or Green Arrow? Yeah. And that's what he does. But it's sweet bordering on him going over that edge. Mm. So it's a nice little 
heartwarming and creepy ending at the same time. Yeah, has he snapped? Because he totally has, if we carry on reading his story. Right. But it does have that ultimately sweet payoff. In 52? Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, it's very much of its time. It's very much heroes having to make tough choices in an increasingly violent world where you don't know who the enemy is. Mm. That's that's an important part of American fiction post-2001. Yeah. You can ream off any number of television shows that now follow this same theme. Mm. Um, I, I think more stories should be told like this. Not all of them. No. But more of them should be told with an understanding that the darker you get, the more seriously you have to take it. Instead of, let's just blow shit up. Yeah, but there's still got to be room for Mr. Mixier's Zittlepick. Yeah, so I'm not saying all stories. Although Alan Moore made Mixier's Zittlepick. Mixie Ziptalk. Well, however the hell you pronounce that. Um, it made him dark and grim and moody, didn't he? Yeah. So, not a good example, perhaps. Alright, yeah, okay. I mean, Batman, I, I, then. Ult- yeah, Batman. Ultimately, I, I actually don't know where I stand on this. And it's... Normally, we're quite happy to throw opinions out the wazoo. <laughs> right. But with this, I'm not... I'm really not sure. Because, like, for the first six issues, like I say, it's really well written. It's well structured. I personally didn't feel they were woefully out of character mm. in the way that Sin's past was. It doesn't do as much damage to the old stories that Sin's past does. Although, I suppose now you're probably reading those Doctor Light Teen Titans issues going, hey, he's only like that because of Zatanna. <laughs> But the story still works, yeah, in a way. But I don't like what the DC universe became after this for a long time. You know, people getting their arms ripped off, and the the level of nihilism and violence that came into DC following this. Mm. But like you said, that's all gone away now. So you can now look at this and judge it. And this does seem to be one of DC's evergreens. Yeah. It's got an absolute edition. It got a 10th anniversary edition. It got a 15th anniversary edition. I don't think it's a love letter to the DC universe in the way that Marvel's is. Mm. But it certainly seems to have been taken to heart of the people that did like it. Well, I don't think you can like anything without knowing that it has flaws. Hmm. Um, So this, I like it, but it's got a lot of flaws in it. But you can't argue that it's important not only for the characters, but also for us and the comics industry. So it doesn't matter whether it's good or not, it's still important. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, it's more important, or it's less important as time goes by. Mm. But I, I, I certainly wouldn't say to somebody, don't read it. But you wouldn't... It's not the first story you'd recommend no, to someone. No, it isn't the first DC superhero story I'd recommend to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know whether we... I don't know about that one. It's a good one, but a weird one. Yeah. Very strange, that. Anyway, I, it, it, I don't know that I could recommend it, like you say, but... I could totally recommend it, but not as a first reading material. Mm. Maybe a deeper reading. Possibly. More of a deep dive. Alright. Okay, well that's that's left us in a, in a bit of a quandary. Yeah. That one. I, I bet this episode wasn't what you thought it was going to be. They never are when I do them with yeah. you. Not anymore. That's why I like doing them. You always bring a little something different. 
next time there is no next time we'll probably be back at Christmas yeah, maybe. We'll, we'll come up with something. I'm surprised you've not made me record more this week. We've been having too much fun doing family stuff, yeah. haven't we? And you know, one episode's enough. We've got <laughs> we've done an evening. We got back. We got the band back together for a one night only engagement. Yeah, we'll we'll do a couple over Christmas, depending on how much you come home. Because obviously, you'll be busy over Christmas with your job. Nah, if if I've still got it, then <laughs> so you'll have to see. I'm, I'm having Christmas off. I don't care. All right, okay. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed that uh, one-off reunion gig that we didn't get paid for. But we don't resent that in any way whatsoever. <laughs> Who's going to pay us ourselves? That's, yeah, we just do dig our hands in our pocket and see what lint we've got in them <laughs> yeah. and what pennies we can afford to give ourselves. And uh, we will see you whenever the next time may be. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Make Work for Idle Hands to Do production and a Two True Freaks presentation. The opinions of Michael and Andrew in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew. Uh, Music used in the show is for review purposes only and we believe that comes under fair use. If you want to drop a few tips in our tip jar, feel free to use the Two True Freaks Amazon link, which costs you nothing but gives us a little something to help produce content like this. Michael and Andrew are both on Twitter and on Facebook, and correspondence to the show can be sent to Hey Kids Comics at virginmedia.com.